Well, hello you. Hello you. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. The sun, you know what? The sun is shining. It's spring, maybe even summer. The days are light until nine. What more could a boy want? Ah, oh, yes. You have reminded me that um, I saw we we did we drove and visit visited my partner's um, dad yesterday. It involved a drive through the countryside, and there were loads of bluebells out. Loads of bluebells and um, wild garlic or ransoms, oh. as it's as it's otherwise known. Which and we picked some. I've totally forgotten about this because I've just been busy with work stuff and things today. And we picked some wild garlic leaves, which we've currently got in a, in a jug of water in the kitchen. Oh, what what does one do with wild garlic leaves? I've heard I've heard tell of them. Ah, um, last year I made a wild garlic kind of pesto, um, oh. which you could do. So you could do that with um a, a vegan cheese, or you could probably just lose the cheese completely and have something that's kind of pesto-y. Um, and that you can have, you know, just I, I use that as a bit of a condiment or to have with them. Um, I can't even remember now because that was a whole year ago. I enjoyed it. I remember that. It's quite nice with um, with boiled new potatoes. Um, you know, that's very civilised. Um, yes, yeah, so and you could you could also. Oh, that was the other thing we we did quite a lot. Stirred into pasta with some other vegetables. Ah. Pasta pesto, but you know, like wild garlic styley. Nice. I, I feel um, I feel maybe you should share a, a recipe in the show notes. Well, I do have a recipe. In fact, I looked up the recipes yesterday trying to remember what the bloody hell the recipe was I used last year. <laughs> there are a few of them. I think Jamie Oliver's got one. Uh, um, Riverford Cottage or whatever. I can't remember. Anyway, there are a few. BBC Good Food has one. I will, I'll pick the best one and I shall share it in the show notes. Sounds like a plan. Sounds all, all very foragey. If that's even a yes, word. it is. It is for it. And it's, it's, I have to give credit to my partner for that because I'm kind of a, like, for many years I've been a bit like, oh, but I don't want to pick something that's poisonous or you know I'm kind of <laughs> just about the whole poverty thing. Um, and my other half has known various people who are quite knowledgeable about this, and he's also just a bit more gung ho about it. Me, so he's like, yes, this is fine. It's, it's well, oh no, that's lords and ladies. Don't pick those leaves because they're really poisonous. I'm like. Lords and ladies. That, yes. I, I, I feel I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. It sounds <laughs> oh, so that is intriguing. Like an, it's an English woodlandy kind of plant. I, they pop up in our garden, but we're kind of on the, on the edge of a scrubby woody bit. Um, and they are, you may have seen them, they kind of got quite broad green leaves. And But the notable bit is they, they're kind of fruiting spike, fruiting body is like this kind of... Um, Tall, um, possibly you know, you might say it's phallic shaped thing. It's funny, you know, sticks up out the ground and and has red, very red kind of berries on it. Oh, I know the thing you mean. Extremely poisonous. Fair enough. And it seems that anything that brightly coloured usually isn't good for you, unless it's like cherries, in which case it's like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, cherries. Yes, yeah, but you do have to be a bit bit wary of things that are bright red. Oh, I mean, cherries, strawberries are fine, but um, fly agaric mushrooms, very, very bad, for example. I, I have heard tell, yes, indeed. You're, you're also wearing very, very red earrings, I have to say. That's true. Maybe so I'm... not all red things are bad. <laughs> no, not definitely not all red things are bad. But uh, red things that you kind of haven't encountered before or, or don't know are good, be a little wet. Yeah, 
this advice is getting a bit more convoluted now. Never mind. In research on people for poisonous plants, I'm not your best source of information <laughs> on poisonous plants. Okay. Don't believe her. Don't believe on the poisonous plants. <laughs> so come on, talk, talk about work. You mentioned mentioned work. What's going on in the world of Louise's Indeed. work? Are... So today I and I haven't done this for I had a pitch meeting. I haven't Ooh. had a pitch meeting for some time. I tend to get into quite into long term projects that kind of go, you know, rumble on for years actually, you know, two, three, four. Well, the client, my longest running client at the moment, I think I've been working for for about three or four years. Um, and and that's how I like it because I get to know their requirements and you know the relationship is important to me. Um, so anyway, today new pitch pitch meeting and that was and it was fine. It was good. Um, I'd done a lot of thinking about it beforehand, um, thinking about what the client said they wanted, um, what they said hadn't worked for them with previous approaches. Um, conversation about the conversation about the budget. Um, and it, it basically we need to have a com yeah we need to agree about that um, my my budget is a little my day rate is a little higher than they were expecting and they're willing to have a chat with me about it and uh, you know they're not kind of saying no and they're not just stringing me along I know that um but it's that's that's interesting and I, I wonder if that is contributing actually to the thing that I was talking to you about before which I'm gonna get to which is that I walked away from the pitch with a bit of a feeling of discomfort, even though I prepared well, I think the conversation was good, and I think I brought everything. I was I was congruent. I you know had integrity. I was happy that I was living my values, and you know what what matters to me about work in that conversation. So that's all you know. That's all good, and that's what I set out to do. Um, and yet. I was walking away from the meeting feeling a little bit, I mean, I had been anxious. I'd been a bit nervous. It's, you know, it's a bit, little bit like a performance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a nice way. And I was just feeling a bit wobbly. And I realised, so I thought about that and I thought, what's going on? I realised that what I wanted was for someone, not me. It had, it was important that it wasn't me to say, oh yeah, you know, you did good. You did good, Louise. I thought about that a bit. And of course, that's that's one situation where you're not going to get external validation you're not and it's not get up that way and it wouldn't be appropriate to ask for it and you know all of that um so the only feedback I'm going to get is do I get the work or not and if I don't get the work I could ask for some feedback on you know what wasn't a good fit and they may or may not give it but you know the big thing is do you get the work or not and what what I realized is the person who needs to whose validation I really needed is mine. Did I think I did a good job? Um, mm-hmm. Looking for external validation is, there's you know issues with that generally, and particularly in situations like that, because there's, you know, it's, it's not set up. It's not set up for that. It's not like having a one-to-one with your line manager. It's you know, totally different to that. And I thought about it a bit more. And I called my, called my other half. And we had a bit of a chat about it. He's brilliant like that. We had a bit of a chat about it. And I, I realised that it, it's that, that whether or not I'd done a good job was not the same as, is not the same as whether or not I get the work. Yeah, they're separate. Mm. To, and I the, I am, I was today years old when I realised that. <laughs> <laughs> today years old. Awesome. Mm. Uh, interesting. Uh, uh, you're abs- I think you're absolutely right, to be honest. It is that piece around validation but it 
pitches are, are strange beasts. But I've, I haven't had to do one for a while, God, a couple of years now, I suppose, because I'm working as a contractor. Mm. So I tend to get tend to get work through, I suppose, sort of a short interviews having been put forward by recruitment agencies mostly. Um, but yeah, so remember those those pitch meetings and they are a performance. You're right, and I think actually, I think it's really. I actually found that quite quite kind of insightful when you're talking about that kind of validation and what you walk away from them. And in a way, all you can do is question back and go, "Did I work within my values? Did I say what I think I needed to say? Was the job was the job that I did the best job? Was it good enough?" Do you know, it was a conversation mm. you and I have had oh, yes. previously. Nice, nice segue there. I like it. Almost as if it was planned. <laughs> So good. Let's let's talk good enough. Let's mm, talk good enough. Yes, yes. Yeah, what is what is your relationship to the phrase "good enough"? Um, I I feel like there's work for me to do there around recognizing good enough. So it, you put it in the um in our our kind of note note platform, didn't you? And I I saw it. I was like, yes, good enough. Because I talk about this. Well, I talk about this with my other half and with other people in fact I was talking to the fabulous Rachel Rumble earlier um who we both who we've both worked with in the past she's brilliant and she is and our conversations kind of today with I we didn't actually use those words but they were thinking about they were skimming around the ideas of good enough what's enough do you know can you decide for yourself or do you have to give your power away to other people to decide what good enough is that and that can be problematic um so yeah so I, th- I think I talk about it quite a lot and it really resonates with me and I and that is because there's yeah there's stuff for me to do around that so perhaps my relationship with it isn't as good as I'd like it to be but it's good enough I, I I'm in process I suppose I'm in a process with it <laughs> Yes, it's, uh, yeah, all right, but this is what I mean, yeah, uh, my relation, yeah, it is good enough, but it could be better. <laughs> <laughs> Opportunities for evolution and development. Yes. But it, is a, it, it, it is a strange thing, I mean, I, I've used it quite a lot at work recently, because we're trying to work through a load of things, and there has to be a realisation that we're not superhuman, actually. Mm. And there is only so much you can do. I mean, if you go back to the joy of Seth Godin, I'm not Mr. Godin's biggest fan, but occasionally he, he does he does say some things that, that resonate. Um, but he talked years ago, I can't remember what it was in, about just basically, he didn't say in these terms, but just get the damn thing shipped out the door and iterate it afterwards. And there is that idea that there's an old um, adage, kind of perfect is the enemy of good. I think, mm. and certainly something I look at things, and the older I get, the more more getting like this, which is weird. But getting something into the universe is better than having it as a perfect idea in your head. And mm. I think where I was schooled, not so much brought up, but I was schooled, I think was very much. I feel thinking back, there was a drive for perfection because obviously I'm. I mean, I am a product of the English educational system, more mm-hmm. specifically the English private. I'm fortunate and privileged enough to have had a private education as well. But lots of that is about passing tests and exams. So I did, so for example, uh, geography, English, what did I do? A-levels, geography, English, politics, that's the one. And mm. general, general studies, got me a fourth A-level in general studies. Um, very exciting. 
but you learn stuff and you sort of power up back stuff and there is an element of synthesis but it's relatively straight line and certainly thinking about when I was between God, seven and 13 or so the, the private school and it was thinking back and it might be the way my memory works but there was a lot of learn this sit this exam do this get this grade go into here go into there and off you go into Eaton Harrow Winchester all the schools I didn't go didn't go to and mm. I'm eternally glad that I didn't that I didn't go to um and so there was this real drive for perfection and I know and again reflecting back over my career and at work I've always wanted to get something out there and there's always been stuff's never quite been good enough it's always oh I can polish that oh there's an edge that I can take I can take it I can do I can I can I can I can mm. God, eventually you've just and it's it's I think it's an aging I think it's a maturity thing maybe don't know maybe but is it a point I think where something is good enough and there's and I've kind of learned and I'm getting better sitting with the concept of good enough in that the out there's almost like an outcome so what is the outcome of the thing that you're doing how much effort is it going to take to get the thing that you're doing absolutely perfect actually what's 80 percent of that is it still going to get over the line is it still going to hit its deadlines are people still going to be really happy with it is anyone going to notice actually that sounds wrong they sound like I'm shirking it is that extra effort going to pay off more than taking that piece of effort and putting it into the next thing or putting it into something else that really needs the love and attention mm. and so yeah good enough it's it makes my heart ache when I have to say it but occasionally I have to around people and go it's good enough we could faff for another three days and get every little tiny everything absolutely perfect that there will be no water to get through this thing but it won't matter because the outcome will still be the same and so yeah it's a very strange I find it a very strange thing to even kind of think about like good enough because it goes so contrary to so much of education and actually working in public service specifically in local government I think there's a I would call it a drive for perfection what it actually is is a drive not to do anything so that you can't get it wrong yeah, so I thinking that one not and, just from public service other areas of life yes yeah and it's it's there and I'm, I'm gonna reflect on a, a conversation I had many years ago compromising road safety and we were talking about um the vision zero concept i.e that no one should be killed or seriously injured on the roads and the conversation which someone else got to it before I, I did which is probably quite good but the conversation actually at a political at a small p political level but a big p organizational politics level was well we can't say vision zero because we'll never achieve it and there'll be mm. a stick to beat us with now i realize that then speaks into a particular, particular political system um but that drive for perfection of, oh it's not quite ready yet 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 oh look the government's changed we don't have to do it anymore it sometimes mm. it feels like a way of kicking kicking stuff down the road and actually saying mm. yeah let's put this let's put this out into the world someone somewhere is going to find fault with it and I think there's also part of me old enough ugly enough people threaten to sue me at work but yeah it, just look at it and go you know what someone no matter what you do and I've worked on we've talked before about branding project I worked on uh, one of my favorite ones actually with with Scott Winterberg um we knew we were going to take a beating for it whatever we did we could have done mm. the best piece of work in the universe and actually it was a bloody good bit of work I will stand by until my dying breath um but whatever we did we'd have got a beating for it but we put it out to the universe anyway and we're like this is the first iteration 
there's other stuff that will come along come along behind and yeah so good enough is a it's a very strange place to be in yeah and I think you you've kind of brought out a few really important points for me which is that it's not the norm the educate our educational system in this country so I, I wasn't private pri- privately educated um and yet I recognize some of the things that you've said uh from my own experience you know, we're the same age we've been going through the school system at the same time mm. I think culturally I hope it's changed I, I think it's shifting um, but I don't know enough about it but culturally yeah there's when I was going through the school system there was still a big focus on learn stuff regurgitated in tests and exams and more than that um maybe maybe it's just kind of an evolution of that thinking is yeah get things right you know kind of remember something correctly um get you know i don't know you you, i don't know if i don't know where this comes from but i think this comes from my family as well um and actually this might be the intersection between kind of the you know kind of knowledge is important know stuff and regurgitate it but then and and make good arguments you know make really strong arguments and i think this kind of either flows into or there's an intersection with um don't leave yourself open for to criticism yes yes yes, yes. when you were talking about fear for me what came up really strongly from my own experience was the idea of you know um not sharing something or you know endlessly tweaking it or endlessly faffing with it in order to prevent against someone being able to kind of find a hole and and pick into it and you know kind of basically blow your open blow wide your your argument and it and that that's a very that's there's a lot of thinking like that and there's a lot of culture like that in academia and I you know I, I encounter some of that I encounter wisps of it at Sussex and, and to be fair that's how many academics have been taught you know, and then you you kind of you do some research you write a paper on it you write a paper in such a way that you you know you anticipate criticisms and you fend them off and 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 you make your argument as you know as um, as complete and as watertight as possible, um, because otherwise you know you won't you kind of you you your findings will be debunked and you know you kind of you won't you won't make it into the into the canon for your subject where you, you kind of you know you won't be taken and then and then you as a person won't be taken seriously. I think is the fear. How real that is, I I'm not I don't know about kind of the peer review publishing and all of that in academia mercifully being kept well out of the the intricacies of it but you know how how real a fear that is that you as a person will be um will kind of be ridiculed and will be um considered not not good uh, not worthy not worthy of listening to that for me that does feel like you know that's a real thing uh, so that fear is grounded in in reality and mm-hmm. when i look at our political system for example and how um, you know kind of how politics operates public politics operates I, I see evidence of that you know you kind of discredit the person um, mm. by discrediting some of it or by just finding you know some gaps in their thinking um, and that's yeah I don't uh, I have all sorts of feelings about that I think I think that's I think it's unhealthy honestly it's like confusing the person and the fitness and the worthiness of the person with um the perfectness or the completeness of their argument i think that's unhelpful 
I think I think you're right, and I think you're absolutely right to bring out the fear element. So I mean, don't, I mean, don't get me wrong; they're good enough. There are certain situations where good enough isn't good enough. So yes, know, yeah, submit, submitting tax returns to HMRC kind of needs to be done properly, or they'll come after you. Heart surgery, brain surgery, kind of needs to be excellent. There's a Although, threshold, isn't there? There's a there's a threshold. Although it, even in those, that there probably are, in, in those sort of really serious things, there probably are pieces where nothing. Would ever be perfect. I think we've I think we've spoken about this before about the, the myth of perfection, um, mm. and how the, like, the Romans with their mosaics always made a mistake somewhere because perfection was for the gods, sort of thing. Um, mm. I think in in certainly my my realm, the, the realms of, of things I see around me, it, it does. And the more you're talking, the more I'm reflecting actually on fear and the nature of fear and the nature mm. of fear in specifically in the workplace because this is kind of the, the root of this this piece. And actually how bounded we are potentially by fear and by fear of getting something wrong or having someone take something or mm. a fear of looking a certain way. So, I mean, I was reading something a little while ago just about about play, actually, and how adults don't generally play. We lose, we lose the ability to play when we're sort of children, generally. And how many certainly in the workplace play seems to be a bad thing because you've got to do X, Y, and Z. You've got to turn up here, and you've got to turn up there, and you've got to to file this thing. But actually, in the imperfection, in the in that piece, is a letting go of fear mm. as well. And that's one thing I've I've found in some of these things where I've had to turn around and go, no, good enough is good enough. It's the work for me is not in overcoming good enough is good enough. Now I think about it, it's about overcoming fear and how deeply rooted that fear is and how deeply how loud the internal monologue can be of no you must get this this must be perfect this must be perfect there's always there's always another statistic there's always another metric there's always another piece of peer review research you can jam into this thing actually does it need to go in there can it still get over the line can it still do what it needs to do and also i I do think i think we've probably spoken about this before but that piece around perfection is isolationary and exclusionist so if I produce mm. something, <laughs> if I produce something that's perfect, um, please tell me. Um, but if I produce something, <laughs> but but that excludes that excludes you from adding something to it because whatever it is, if it's a, mm. I don't know, a, I want to say a cup. I have no idea why I want to talk about a cup. But I'm going to talk about a cup. If I make the perfect cup, yes, you will put tea in it, but it will be so perfect. You won't look at it, I would guess, and go, oh, what if, what if the handle was a little bit something else? It's, it stops. Perfection for me is, it's a stop. It doesn't invite collaboration. It doesn't invite conversation. Mm. And they, and they're quite fearful things as well. So sometimes being in collaboration and conversation with others, people will come back and something you poured your heart and soul into. And I have this sort of regular, you know, I'm like, I pull my heart and soul into all sorts of things. I have this sort of relatively regular basis. I pull my heart and soul into something and someone comes along and, pulls a pulls a thread or goes we can't do this because and i'm like oh just this is dejection it's upsetting isn't it it's really uncomfortable it is actually it reminds me of a (laughs) complete random Mm. sideways when i was when i was a kid had uh, we had two two dogs and um one the the muffin and honey i named them i was young um i know they were very cute they're always pta rescues and muffin had all the brains. They were sisters, apparently, but nothing like each other, behaviourally completely different. Muffin had all the brains. Honey had the beauty. She was a very, very pretty dog, but she 
didn't have two sticks to rub together mm. in, the, in the in the in the brain fire department, bless her. And she spent ages. She found a bone. We took her out for a walk, and she found a, she found this bone. I don't know what the hell it was a bone from, but she found this bone in the middle of a golf course. Um, and she spent ages. She dug a hole. She wasn't neither of them were dogs that dug, but she dug a hole. She put the bone in the hole. She patted it down, all four feet, pat, 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 pat. She walked around this thing. She looked at it. She even used her nose to, like, tap in the last bit of earth, tamping it down so that this bone would live, live, it would exist, whatever bones do underground grow into new animals. I don't know. And she stepped back. She was so happy with this thing. And she left the tiniest little bit sticking out above the ground. Muffin came along, saw it, grabbed the tiniest bit that's sticking out of the ground and dripped it out. Pulled this bone out of the ground, oh. and if a dog's door jaw could drop, honey's really? hit the floor. <laughs> she, she was so dejected, and her oh. yeah, her her patting it down was perfect. It wasn't even bless her, it wasn't even good enough. It didn't didn't stop her slightly naughty sister from stealing the bone. But yeah, for, for some reason, you've just reminded me completely of that story that I was, I'd, I'd forgotten for, for all these years. But it is that thing you're right about pulling the threads, and it is it is fear, and that makes me then think how much is whether it's this could just be my subjective experience of I've got everything's brought me into to work and, and whatever but how much then is rooted in that fear and how freeing it can be when you just go you know what it is actually good enough let's just get it in the world and see what on earth happens mm. right and I have your dead right about um that's probably not a, I probably shouldn't stop should stop using that phrase actually um that's one for me to think about later you are absolutely right that um and i completely agree with you about collaboration i think that um perfection and collaboration are mutually exclusive i think and i think that's a really good point i really like the way you explain that and also i can just see muffin and honey i don't even know what they look like but i've imagined them um (laughs) and I, i can just see the scene and i think it can be really, it, it involves being vulnerable, doesn't it? It involves being vulnerable because you're opening yourself up to, you know, your kind of, your fear that what you've done, other people don't like, other people aren't interested, other people don't don't get what you've poured your heart and soul into. As I, you know, for, for Honey, Muffin didn't, didn't get what he was trying to do at all. There was just no way that those two were on the same page, is there? Um, no. No, and I, <laughs> and I, I find I think in working with teams, you know, this good enough depends on the goal and the audience, doesn't it? What what is good enough? And so, a long, hard one lesson for me, and I'm still working on this, is to share my work with team members before it's ready before I think it's ready and it again it depends on the piece of work it depends on the team it depends on the the goals it depends on all sorts of things um as to you know where good enough is and it's always going to be a subjective judgment um but I have I, I when I think back of all the time all the time I must have spent polishing and perfecting something so that with the idea that it would just be you know my manager or my colleagues would just accept it fully formed without question and actually quite a lot of that time wasn't very well in retrospect wasn't very well spent because there was always going to be a review or an addition or something you know I, I, I was very unlikely to kind of get something just right um, and actually my version of just right 
isn't as good as it could be with the collaboration and contribution of other people. So it's quite a hard one lesson, but it's one that I feel is really starting to bear fruit in my life is share things before I think they're ready, as long as the audience is the right one for it and we're at the right stage in the, you know, in the process. So, I, you know, that comes, that's partly comes down to safety, doesn't it? It has to feel safe enough. Mm. And there's that piece then around psychological safety mm. in the workplace and teams that, that have it and teams that don't. Um, and that's, that's, again, another really difficult thing to create. So I've been in, in teams that are not psychologically safe, where people don't mm. feel they can put their hands up and say, I disagree, or yes, and, or yes, but, or mm. no, and, etc. Um, and they're really difficult, uncomfortable spaces. And in those teams, I've often then, then played that role of going up, just giving someone a ring, going, Hey, you're right. Let's let's have a let's have a chat. Let's see see what's kind of going on. Even if it's not my hierarchical role to do oh, so. You're really good at that, actually. I have oh, I have you. benefited from that when working with you in the past. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Um, but there is that piece around psychological safety, and the, I mean the, the team I'm in at the moment, then HSP, is a very psychologically safe team. I think um, Ooh, that's it's a fun. very it is actually it is, and it's a very collaborative team. Um, we do have lots of discussions and lots of. As with any team, there's lots of different compositions. It's quite a big team. So as you're involved in like 10, 15, 20, 30 different permutations of this, this team. But actually, we, have, we all have the opportunity to sit back and go, yeah, not sure about that. Can we investigate that a bit further? Or as you said, this isn't quite ready for the universe, but can someone just give it a second set of eyes and have a little look-see for me? Mm. Um, which is quite freeing. And I, I certainly find that, because for me, I, I get tangled at the end of perfe- or towards the end of perfection. I go what I think is beyond good enough, trying to get that last little bit. Just, I end up getting tied up in knots and you then can't see the whiff of the trees, knots are other good yeah. metaphors um, and so on. But actually then by inviting and saying, okay, we know this isn't ready, but can you take a look at it anyway? Can you come in earlier than I would normally invite you? I think that's actually very, I personally, I think that's very freeing. I find it very, very freeing indeed. Partly because I can put down the weight because those projects, when you think they've got to be perfect, they get really heavy. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good word, and I'm I'm loving how visceral and and embodied that is. It's a, another project that I'm thinking about and working on with some people at the moment. It's about more you know about embodiment. Um, not yeah, is it's not my specialist area, so I can't really say much about it at, at the moment. Maybe more as 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 that progresses. But yeah, heavy. It does feel heavy, doesn't it? And that weighs you down. And and actually, none of us, I think. I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but my guess is none of us actually really enjoy going to work or showing up for work or working through that heavy stuff. We can do it. We, you know, we could willpower and, you know, kind of determination to get the job done. You know, many things, we can drive ourselves in many ways. But actually, I don't think we really enjoy it. And I, I think, you know, for sustainable work and be- and our best work, I think you know we want we want more of the light. I'm enjoying it where mm. where possible, and less of the heavy. This is really difficult, or I feel really weighed down, or I feel really heavy around this. P- purely because energy is finite, right? So you know, God, yeah, absolutely. Stuff. I did. I did know someone who, uh, someone that I work, still work with sometimes, and she knew so meg hi meg if you're listening meg knew someone um 
who she described as only ever taking on work that they really wanted to do and they'd kind of they they'd mastered the art of delegating and you know had had the facility had the luxury of a team they could delegate the stuff that wasn't kind of totally in it wasn't what they really really liked doing what they what they really felt good at um and therefore got phenomenal amounts of stuff done because the energy was being spent on things that this person felt kind of largely quite happy doing Mm. and you know largely comfortable doing and not that they never challenged themselves but that their energy was kind of being used in the in the maximally optimal way and I've just I don't know how one achieves this um but I'm like wow that's just like like this utopia it sounds like hitting the flow state yes and actually finding that no matter and I think from my again just from my experience flow hits at a number of different points even in I mean you know some of the crisis work I've been involved in mm. in the past um don't need to go over that particularly here so all of my CV it's all on LinkedIn um but even in those incredibly heavy things you hit if you can hit a flow you can carry the you can carry that weight mm. Mm. but then if there's something else so if you can't hit as again speaking personally if I can't hit that flow for whatever for whatever reason it makes things feel heavier anyway i mean things are i don't know even carrying heavy shopping bags if you can just keep walking at a steady pace they're heavy mm. but they sort of stay heavy whereas if you've got to stop every 30 seconds because you're at a new intersection or people keep cutting you up we have to keep changing direction it, the more energy it's more cognitive energy more kind of motion energy as well the bags seem to get heavier and heavier and heavier Mm. even though essentially you're still carrying them on the same plane so yeah if you, it sounds very much like they um, hit that flow state and then you can just i don't know what happens to, to time for personally again when i hit that flow state you can work eight hours and get so much done mm. it's unreal it's like you can't normally actually do that amount in eight hours but if you hit flow you can yeah oh yeah it's it's there's something magic about it but it feels like a, a state without fear as well so i think about flow as well so it's worth either hitting the idea of good enough is good enough so actually you get through whatever it need, whatever it needs to be actually you've got it to the point where you can go to the next thing you can move you can move with it you can move on to the next thing but yeah the times i've hit without flow there isn't that fear behind it yeah. something's something is different yeah that's really really interesting it's interesting we've disappeared here because we started our planning sessions. Obviously, we do plan these podcasts. We do. <laughs> Never stick to it. Um, <laughs> Never stick to it. I mean, thank goodness you, you stick to your foraging plans. Um, <laughs> please continue yeah, to stick to your foraging plans. Can I just say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not after that. Thanks. <laughs> death, or, death or a slightly wonky podcast. Um, <laughs> we, were talking, we were talking before actually about, about discomfort. Yes, particularly because a few it was interesting. A few things we kind of picked up in our, our kind of monthly trawlings of just interesting stuff that's going on that the lands discomfort seemed to be a, a bit of a theme that popped up. It, yes, it did pop up in a few places, didn't it? And I was because I, I was thinking of, and, and I I was thinking about my pitch experience, and it was my discomfort after the pitch after what I thought was a good meeting. Um, it felt good while I was in it. It was my discomfort that made me think, hang on, what's going on here? And and, and reflect. And um, and actually, the other thing that's interesting about that is that 
I noticed my discomfort in feeling a bit wobbly. So that it was a physical sensation that that I um that I was tuning into. Um, yeah, interesting. And yeah, so but a couple of you did say, didn't you? A couple of other things. Um, I can't. Yeah, because you mentioned blank. Gone blank. Um, I mean, obviously, discomfort. There's the, the opportunity for growth. I mean, there was that. I, again, this sort of made me reflect on when we think about fear a few minutes ago. And actually, fear mm. is a good. It's not a good. Sorry, it's a. Uh, uh, my mind's gone blank now. Look at that. It's contagious. Um, it's a, a fear can make you help you. To, it can help you to grow, but obviously in limited quantities and, and times or whatever. Yeah. But discomfort, discomfort as well as a as a can be a good growth tool in the right measure and in the right way. But yeah, because you, you shared something that I sort of understood but didn't quite get. Um, oh, it's, yeah. It's about, about poetry and language. Yeah. How strange we should be talking about poetry and language on this podcast. Well, I know. It's the first time for everything. Um, yeah, yeah, and people like and I, uh, writing, either writing poems in two different languages or there was something I was in, very intrigued by about opening... Someone said, I usually grab my phone, open Google Translate from the tech. I feel like I get a very non-fluent feel for the language, which parallels, parallels the experience of so many US immigrants dismantling English language power structures. And I was like, oh. Mm. I, it's all the kind of things so, that hello. we like talking about, isn't it? All wrapped I know. Up a few tweets. My goodness. And I was like, I, was like, I need Louise to, to help <laughs> me understand this. <laughs> yes. So um, shout out to um, Talika who is in my poetry group and she's uh, she's a she's amazing she's a, i mean so many of the people i know are amazing i think just people generally are amazing um talika's particular brilliance is that she so she's worked as a um a psychiatrist i think in the nhs for many many years she um has changed careers um partly she's changed careers because she's um she is it's she calls out she calls out um structural racism and she she calls she calls out kind of systemic issues like that um and she you know i i think well it's her story but i think that you know she needed to change career because she was fine actually finding it funny kind of difficult to remain true to herself in in you know in her role within the nhs for various reasons that as i say would be would be hers to to share if and when she wanted to but what what her brilliance is that she is not afraid to call things out and to share things and to say well you know what about this and I don't I don't think that's that's right um and she's you know where other people would be quite hesitant she's she's not and I think just an incredible courage and incredible gift that she has and I know and I've told her this um and yeah any opportunity to tell her again honestly (laughs) and she so she pops up in my Twitter timeline every now and then sharing stuff that's always, it's always worth looking at. It's always okay. interesting. So this one is, she shared a tweet from uh, at Chen Chen writes is a poet. Don't know them at all. Um, but the tweet reads in my new book, I have some poems that use Mandarin and English. I don't translate. This is my linguistic world, how I grew up, how I continue to think. The Mandarin is super conversational and at a second grade level, but I'm sure some readers will feel put off scared even lols. Um, and she she shared that with me and a few other kind of poet contacts with the quotes. Then she pulled out, "This is my linguistic world." Okay. And I so I kind of thought about that, and I realised that I am one of those people 
who will who would feel who does feel intimidated by encountering language you know a language that I don't understand okay about that some more so it's and it's you know it's uncomfortable for me and and it's about not understanding and not kind of being able to make sense and and uh, yeah it's fear it's fear about not I don't know not being in control not understanding not being able to master it something um and I was thinking about that and my discomfort and I really wanted to reply and I was thinking about that and I thought this I don't want to make my reply all about me I don't want to center my discomfort because that that just wasn't the thread it wasn't the conversation I'm like that's that's not cool um so I thought you know I kind of thought a bit more about the thread and made made my reply and and said you know said thank you appreciated Talika and Chen Chen writes for for what they've shared and this thing I was looking at some of the replies to the to so the the the, what, the thing that you read out was one of the replies about um oh, where is it um yeah I'll use Google Translate and get a non-fluent experience with poetry it's probably mirrors the experience of non-native US people navigating English power structures I thought my experience is kind of much closer to that actually this you know kind of the idea that it's a non I get a non-fluent experience of trying to read Mandarin and that yeah what can I what I can take away from that is that for some people that's their every day of trying to navigate power structures in a language that isn't their first language and it it feels important to me to be honest about my discomfort around that and in in that twitter thread wasn't the right place for it but i i thought it might you know if if you were if you were up for it then we might talk about it a bit here because it feels important for me to just i i think as a society certainly in um England we struggle you know this and it, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about fear admitting to discomfort that we feel discomfort even to ourselves more so to other people um is really you know is, is a bit of a no-no and, you know it's difficult to be vulnerable and there's fear that will be judged and if I could if, if I were to go on a mission about something it would probably be to that I'm not already on a mission about it would probably be to normalize feeling discomfort and just be able to talk about it rather than react or kind of um withdraw so it feels in- interesting okay thank you has made it made sense of that thread i think yeah, well, I, I, I came in part way through and i felt a bit of a, i felt a bit of discomfort going, i'm not sure what's going on here i need to i need i need to find out because it, it felt interesting and it made me think about a that piece about English language power structure as well. I think interesting. Maybe start questioning bits of language. But there is a piece I think there. You're right about sitting with discomfort and how difficult that is for so many people. And I'm not sure it's a skill we ever really. I don't think I ever really got taught it. Mm. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think back, and it was yeah, sitting down and almost inquiring into the roots of that mm. discomfort. As well, so I've had I've had times in my life where I have felt discomfort, and I have and I've observed my my brain going, no, push discomfort over there, be gone, be gone, go and think about something else, go and do something else, and actually, effort will to sit with it normally resolves whatever it is, but 
it is interesting. I know we we've, we've talked before on the podcast and over beers about kind of exclusionary language and mm. all that all that sort of thing and how even if you speak in the same you speak the same language you can speak a different tongue or speak yeah. in the same tongue you can use a different language whichever way around whichever way around that one goes. But I'm intri- I'm intrigued by the experience of, of reading of reading the poetry. I mean, again, can you have you got links? Are there links to some of the the bits of work we can share? Um, I hadn't found any, and I'm not sure if so. I had a, a cursory look. I didn't. I I, I didn't have a, a great look, and I I wonder if it it may it may be it's published, may be available. So so that's a mission, and and because this is this is what I went away thinking is right. I would like to challenge myself to read more poetry that uh, more more of anything actually, but particularly poetry because it's an interest of mine that includes language I don't understand because it it feels you know it's a kind of a way to challenge this belief I have that I need to understand everything and I need to you know it, and it's a yeah it's a way of not challenging myself I suppose and and I I read something earlier actually privilege is the power not to have to think about things something I meant to that was fabulous really good distillation and it, it's that you know as long as I'm reading something in English which is not only my first language but you know a language I'm very comfortable and very fluent in um uh, yeah as long as I'm reading that then I don't have to think about the fact that I don't know everything I don't know every language or you know there might be situations where it would be difficult for me to understand or to make myself understood which we and it and actually I think my mind is more open to it at the moment because I've just been in Portugal um and I'm trying. I'm starting to learn Portuguese. I'm really interested in learning learning the language. Okay. Um, and the challenge, the the kind of the most difficult thing about learning language for me up to this point in my life has always been that I want to get it perfect. I want to get it right. I want to speak. I want to go from not knowing the language at all to speaking it like a local. And that's because of fear. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to not understand. I don't want to struggle to make myself understood. I don't want to look daft. And the more I lighten up and hold it lightly and the more comfortable I get with the fact that sometimes I'm going to say something really stupid or sometimes it's going to take me 10 minutes to order a friggin' coffee. Um, (laughs) And, you know, and and I am dependent upon the goodwill and and the generosity of other people to give me that 10 minutes in which I fluff my order. (laughs) Um, As soon as I kind of make my peace with that, it all gets a lot easier. It's interesting about learning, talking about learning another language because it's been something I've been thinking about doing. So I speak bits of French, I was fluentish many, many moons ago, mm-hmm. forgotten it. And I, I was talking to my half about this because I, I, I fancy learning, I fancy learning another language, not necessarily to go and, and visit places, but I fancy, le- I fancy learning another language that is completely, ah, hmm, what is the word? completely sideways to my daily existence so not something that I would use generally so I mean, I'm tempted by Japanese because I love Japanese culture but I'm like at the same time I want I would like to learn a very niche language whether that would be no I'd like no sorry a niche language a, a language from a culture that I do not know and have no relationship with mm. so I, I'm really I'm really interested in the way that language forms reality Ah, okay. And so actually, because my thought then is if I was able to learn 
I don't know, a, a first people's language from the um, first peoples of what's now Northern America or the Aboriginal peoples in um, Australia, I would get, I would find some insight into how they interpret the world around them and how they move through the space and move through the world mm. around them, which would be so far completely different. So I could potentially learn, I don't know, let's say Spanish, for example, and that would definitely give me nuance, but I have an, a, a bit of an understanding, a bit of an appreciation for Spanish people and kind of Spanish culture. I know that sounds like a very homogenous thing, obviously it's not, but something that's so far removed from my, my daily existence there's kind of part of me that's like, oh, that'd be really fascinating just to see how the world is constructed through the words, through the sentences, through the, the grammar and mm. so on. I mean, even if you think, I don't know, French, we say the blue house. They say la maison bleue, the house blue. Mm. Veni vidi vici being um, one of the shortest yet most complete things. Like, uh, came and saw, we came, we saw, we conquered. It's kind of mm. the perfect, it's like the perfect Twitter headline back in the days of Marathon and Sparta and ancient Greece. Yeah. Um, the Rome, yeah, it's been a long day. But yes, I'm like, I'm learning new language. Yeah, it could be fun. Verb object kind yeah. of relationships. Yeah. And languages. that's one thing. I mean, I really struggled when I was at school. I'm very excited. I sort of write for a living. Um, mostly write for a living. I really struggled with the technical implementation of English. So if you were to ask me past participles, any of that, the basic rules of grammar, I, I, I mostly get ignore them occasionally um but I, I kind of get it but i don't i don't do technical writing i don't do academic mm. writing that i can but i i really struggled with that i think looking back at it i struggled because it atomized the experience of the language to such a degree mm. that i'm not i don't want to know what i don't want to know why this thing is the noun i want to feel why this sentence is beautiful i don't mm. want to know that it's the dependent something of the what's it the thingy whatever there are people in the universe who love that sort of stuff i'm like for me i, I don't want i don't want to take it apart i want to i don't know i want to look at the i want to look at the beautiful tree without understanding how its dna is combined yeah i don't yeah, need to know poet. that's what it is <laughs> Why, thank you but yeah so yeah learning new, i'm interested to, to hear what your your journey into portuguese is, is going to be i will i will share with you at, at the moment there's not much to report I'm just kind of getting started with it um and I, I could do things so when I was there I could do things like I could actually order a coffee that was um was understanding my challenge while I was there was to focus on understanding the um the amount of the bill so numbers are quite but numbers in the context of currency are surprisingly difficult, um, especially when you get and this happens in all languages. It happens an awful lot in Portuguese in lang in conversation. Um, sounds are, are elided, which means that you kind of na na the natural flow of language means that some sounds are unstressed and therefore disappear almost completely. And the Portuguese do this an awful lot. So there's um not, I can't think of a number example, but um, but the the to, in order to say I am, um, you say estu. Only you don't say estu. You say estu. You just the e sound at the beginning is almost is kind of completely lost because it's unstressed. So you say estu. So it might be estufeli. I think I'm happy. Okay. So it's written estu feliz. 
Uh, well, Felice with the Z on the end. And and it said, I mean, my pronunciation is rubbish, but it's said more like Stufelief. Interesting. And, and actually, the other really, the other kind of big challenge I've got with Portuguese is the intonation and the inflection. So one of the uh, really, uh, the Portuguese people who we spoke to were just lovely and really, really willing. Even the restaurants, I'm almost giving my partner tips on pronunciation. Busy waiter <laughs> at the restaurant, it was lovely. Um, and his feedback was that our pronunciation was very Spanish. Um, and okay. actually the um, the stress tends to fall in different places, even though many of the words are written quite similarly. The stress mm. falls in different places to Spanish. So that's a way that you can kind of get it, get it wrong, that you don't know until you start speaking it and and even when when the Portuguese are giving you kind of slightly odd looks, like like, <laughs> like maybe you're speaking it, you know, like the equivalent would be speaking English with a Scottish accent in this country. You can mostly okay. understand, but it's a bit hard work. And they're kind of looking at you like that, and you're thinking, I don't know, I'm trying. Um, and you know, it takes someone who is kind of able to figure out what's going on and has, is prepared to take the time to say, Oh yeah, your pronunciation, it's it's this. It's that the stresses are in the wrong place. Or it's that that you you're speaking the words as if they're Spanish and they're not. Oh, okay. Interesting. I mean thinking there's I mean obviously with English we have a huge amount of regional accents and different mm. letters being stressed and and I yeah, different different areas of the country like teas more more than others, I I discovered. Or not, yeah. But but yeah, but actually when you're then crossing crossing language borders. But yeah, it's just, I, I don't know, I just think it'd be a fascinating project to get an insight into, into how worlds are constructed for people of different, completely different places and cultures. That is, and, and I, I think um, even just something about being a bit dislocated from your home language and context and that, so just to bring it back to the original where we came into this because that feels important to me that I've gone on I've gone on quite a loop about my own experience but um Chen Chen at Chen Chen writes and I, I haven't even found out um his published name his published his name is you know published poet yet so I've got I've got a bit of research to do there but um I'm it's it feels really powerful that they are writing in the languages that they're familiar with you know that that matter to them and they're like this is my world this is my linguistic world and also that Tulika picked up on it just a a reminder Mm -hmm. what I in the end um having thought about it a little bit I I realized that it it's an invitation for me it seemed like an invitation into their world Mm. and that you know what that I might find that uncomfortable and and you know I and a person may choose not to not to engage fair enough but actually I realize it's it's an invitation into into their world out of mine um and to meet somewhere in the middle which you know I'm all for stuff like that actually I think that's amazing great. that's a lovely it is a lovely way of putting it and again I just think for those of us who live work breathe in our native tongues it tends to be so much easier. I mean, I've spoken to, to people who are bilingual, trilingual, etc., and they're constantly translating different things. Wow. I spoke to I spoke to one person who was at least trilingual. I think they spoke about four different languages, but and they were working somewhere that wasn't their first language, and they would just they described this loop that they went through, even though they were they were completely fluent, mm. but they would 
describe this loop of essentially translating from one language into another language into their native language their birth language wow. and back again and they're like you've it's just got to give me some time in the conversation because it takes me like another half a second to make a triple mm. loop and then come come back again so yeah it's all it's all mixed up and yeah but just and, and worldviews and, and so on. it's fascinating it's fascinating it is and understanding that that you know that um that for that person to feel safe enough to say that and to say oh actually I probably I probably just need a, you know an extra half second or just a little bit longer to process um you know it's it's I I've always been quick with with English yeah I've, I've just always been I've always been a, a relatively fast thinker and relatively fast at reading and I, I just always have and and it's really easy for me to forget that sometimes I race ahead of other people and that you know sometimes and it's just just chill out a minute you know and let us all kind of find a pace that works for everyone rather than kind of race off yeah absolutely absolutely speaking of speaking of language and discomfort mm. one thing that's one thing I, I I never mentioned on on Twitter the way the book cover oh, yes. so and actually weirdly there's a there's a line in this that, that stopped me so the, the book is um so I suddenly realised in a moment of pure audio genius, I was waving a book at the monitor. <laughs> the book is a book called They by, uh, by a writer called K. Dick. I can't remember when it was written. Oh, 1977. There we go. And it's it's quite a hard, I find it quite a hard book to read. I, 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 I get on well with most literary styles. This is very choppy and lots of long mm. words. Pellucidity was in one of the last ones. What to say again, sorry? Pellucidity, I think it was. Pellucidity. Oh, okay, I have heard that. I I've, I've heard of it and she went, okay, I'll just accept yeah. it and move on. Um, and they did. The, there's a line in there that, that kind of stopped me slightly. Um, and the, the, It's a very simple line. And it comes back to the, actually the feeling of weight. So they're talking about moving through, through the countryside and various impediments. Um, move lightly, Tom had written, as though you belong. Oh. I, I know and I was like oh and that really made me think about how you can move lightly through spaces that you belong in but if you don't feel like you belong and you have discomfort around something whether it's I don't know whether maybe because you, it's a, a space where the language isn't yours or the you're from a different community and you feel under threat by the community that you're you're moving through you can't move lightly and I was like, oh, then there's moments of genius like this in there. But the book itself, I mean, I, I like my dystopia. Don't get me wrong. I read, I read a lot of dystopian fiction. It's kind mm. of kind of mything more so than, more so than any else. And more, as I get older, the more dystopian fiction I read. And most of it's coming true, which is really worrying. Um, disturbing, yeah. But it's, oh, it's a book I'm recommending, like, everyone read. It's, it's, it's very unsettling very I had to sit with discomfort through mm. a lot of it not because it's graphic there's nothing in there that one wouldn't read to one's elderly grandmother let's mm. say we've all read some of those books I'm sure um it's not it's not a Stephen King it's not a it's it's not frightening in, in those respects but it carries with it some ideas about society and creativity. It, if I, for me, there's there's the evocations of Fahrenheit 451 in there, censorship, a lot that's incredibly current for a book that was written in 1977. It, fell out, it mm. fell out of print. It's got this lovely story around it about how it fell out of print and a literary agent found a battered copy in a charity shop held together by Goodwill, and it was about it. Mm. And they managed to get it back into print um, after like 30 years. It is 
but yeah, I was just really intrigued because I was talking about how it kind of the threads of it really resonate with me. Um, mm. And it is dark and it is discomforting. And I know because I think you came back on on Twitter and I said, oh, I feel myself pulling away, but I want to want to move to mm. want to move towards a bit more. Yeah, I I did just what you said about it on Twitter. My my first kind of response was, oh, okay, really not sure about that. Um, feels not like something I something I want to move away from and and I you know because it was a because it's a recommendation from someone I trust um I thought no I'm gonna just you know think a bit more about that rather than just making a snap decision and and what yeah what I, I got interested in in my discomfort around it and you know and those I mean that line that you just read there is that's the second time I'm going to use this word today but there's that there's magic in those words uh, there's just such a sim such a simple formulation but just so yeah it, it, I, actually I'm, I'm reading a book called saved by a poem by Kim Rosen at the moment and there's something in there about the power of poetry to speak truth okay awesome um, and it, it's a truth that you, I think it's truth that you can feel is part of it. And I just I really felt something as you read, as you read those words from from they. Um. So yeah. I mean, I can I can definitely remember it. Um, remember? I, oh God, I do remember it. Um, I can definitely recommend it. I mean, I read the second half while standing in queue for record store day. I mean, it's only like hundred and ten pages. I think it's not a it's not a big time. Um. And there's part of it. So, I mean, again, without saying anything that's not on the dust jacket, I will just double check on the, the inside of this beautiful, this beautiful, beautiful edition. Um, so the author, yeah, Kay, Kay Dick, um, uh, she was kind of a, a radical queer writer. And there are parts of it where, although she's not writing about the queer experience, you can absolutely draw lines through to what it must have been like as um, yeah, as a, a, a gay woman back in the seventies or or back further, and there are parts of that that, as a gay man, I found quite chilling. And there's a couple of bits in it that when I read, I was like, that feels uncomfortably like things I've experienced. And again, nothing to the 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 narrator, the person who was talking these things, um, nothing. I can't even say nothing bad happens because it's a nothing. There is no physical violence meted out against them, mm. so it's not. A, we're not. We're not talking about. I don't know. Books like um, "If God Was a Bullet," for example, which is is quite a, very good, but quite violent. Um, but there were certain bits of it. And I was like, I I understand and I recognise. I was telling my partner we were walking down New Road in in Brighton. I said, "There's this one chapter that got me here." And I tapped my heart and I burst into tears. Mm. And I don't do that very often. No, and I don't, don't, I don't do it with yeah. books very often. Music occasionally, but there was just something, and there is. I mean, I would love you. I would love you to read it and mm, and sit yeah. and sit with it and, and and then talk. But it is. I read the I read the first half. I read the first half. My other half was working, and I read the first half sitting on sitting on a bed. We've got those alarm clocks. It's got the white noise thing. And I was like, oh, I I will have the sound of thunderstorms, and it was really eerie. There are no oh. thunderstorms. There are no thunderstorms in the book. Most of it's um, 
must have set in the summer. Uh, but it was just this noise, this nature noise behind resonated mm. with what, and again, I know you're sort of saying you've kind of got scrubby land and, and trees by you, so kind of the, the sounds of the bird song and so on, and it is set in a Sussex, there are references to the Downs, so it's a very emplaced for me. But it was a very, it's not an easy read, it's not a, there's not a page turner, right. it's not, you have to, I have to, I had to work at the language, I actually had to work at the language, and sometimes the language kind of got in the way a little bit, and I had to kind of go back and reread the paragraphs and so on. But the sense of unease and discomfort, but what it says about art and artists and poets and potters and painters and groupthink mm. and the dulling down of, I mean, it is, I've never read anything like it ever. Yes. So I haven't read it. I'm really intrigued now. I, I will give it a go. Um, but I wonder how important the slight challenge with the language is to creating the atmosphere of the work. And so having not read it, I couldn't even hazard a guess. Um, but it, it's, yeah, some... If we're talking about discomfort and creating, you know, kind of creating a sense of dis-ease and discomfort, um, reading something that a reader can, writing something that a reader can kind of race through without having to pause or to think, it kind of, well, what's, what's that mean? What's that? You, you're already, you're putting the reader in an uncomfortable spot <laughs> by, you know, by forcing them to, or you know, making making it so that it's quite, they have to work quite hard to get through it. And I, I wonder how much that contributes to to the kind of the feeling of dis-ease. Um, yeah. And, it, and it, there's a really interesting, um, I think I might even be able to bring this back full circle. I, I don't think this is especially contrived. It, just, it does make sense to me that, so you said the, the, the something that struck me in your tweet was that the book was forgotten about. It was published in 77 or, um, mm, yeah, late yep. 70s. And kind of was forgotten about, and it's enjoying a real resurgence now, isn't it? Mm. Because it's been found by a literary agent, it's been published, and also, it, you know, there's kind of it is enjoying a lot, you know, a surprising amount of popularity. I think there's an interesting point there that for the author, for Kay Dick, whether they wrote, whether they created a piece of art, you know, whether they created a good piece of art, is not the same thing as whether people bought the book in their yes. robes is it you know because that piece of art has something to say to us now and maybe now is the time for it you know when it you know will kind of catch the public imagination but that artwork is not kind of it's not beholden to whether or not it's popular or whether the artist did what they intended i don't what you have to get kind of quite specific about your measures, you know. But but mm. I think yeah, my thing is, the artwork is is not the sum of its popularity. Interesting. Oh, I hope you read it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I, was, I was sitting here in a moment of great audio. I was sitting here just grinning from ear to ear. Like, oh my God. <laughs> you have so for for you for you listeners, Neil kind of as he said that, or just before he said that, he kind of leaned back. And just kind of, you know, the impression I lean back and I kind of got this sense of, yes, yes. <laughs> Tap my fingers together. <laughs> but yeah, oh, good, you're making me think about the, the structure and the, the art and the, the how, oh, yes. Oh, read it. Okay. Read it. Right. 
sold. I shall read, read it. it. Then we can have a beer and I'll, talk about I'll buy it. Coffee and I'll read it. I look forward to it. Amazing. But yes, it's a, it's a favourite edition. It's very it, it's very pretty. It's got an embossed cover, oh, and that makes that beautiful. makes me happy. Yeah. And it's also got a double. Um, it's got one of those sort of double dust flap jobbies. It's a, a paperback, Ooh. but it's got uh, I know, which is quite quite unusual. So it's the hard. Like hardcovers have got the, the double flappy bit. Yes. This paperback version has got it as well. So yes, there we there we go. But yeah, so I'd be I'd love yeah I'd love, I'd just love to know, I'd love to know what you think. And again, if we've got any listeners out there, I've, I've recommended it to a few people who may not listen to the, the podcast. But I'd love to, I'd love to know if anyone else has, has discovered it actually. And I don't know how you discovered it. We discovered it in um, the name of the bookshop's gone. It's not foils. Big one in big one in London anyway. And it was on one of the one of the stands there where K. Dick actually worked. I, I didn't realise. And oh. just and it was one of those things of the bookshop. It's not. That's really annoying me. It's not foils. The name will come back to me soon. Stop recording. It's dangerous for my wallet. Every time I go in there, I'm like, oh, that looks nice. That looks nice. Oh, I'll have one of those. And then kind of come come down and weigh in these heavy bags. And I'm like, God, I've got to keep on going back to the hotel. Keep on going. Don't stop. The bags get heavy. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> the unbearable lightness <laughs> of not book, of bookshops or something books. like that. And I still wouldn't have a Kindle. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. On, that, on that happy note, I think we've got to a, a place that's probably good enough. Yes, good enough. What and and what a what a fabulous conversation. I really appreciate the, the links that you've shared, um, and I just the yeah the what you bring to our conversations, the way you kind of you illuminate things I, I therefore think differently about them I see different connections you connect things up it's, it's just brilliant it's potentially overwhelming I may need to go and lie down for a bit now <laughs> oh thank you and, and likewise and that is that is the joy of this and that is the joy of, well, we didn't talk about one thing we're going to talk about having a chance to is like that third space but that just that that place for conversation and interaction and just getting stuff out there and exploring it it's, it's a very special thing so thank you and on that happy note, it's been a, a delight. Hip 16 has, has gone with a swing. It is at least good enough. And uh, onwards and forwards into to 17. Yes, indeed. Yes. All right, then. You, well, take care. You too. And bye. Take care. <laughs> Tatty bye. <laughs>